I do appreciate your ministry to us, brother. That's, that's a blessing. Open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel with me tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 23. We'll be headed there in just a moment. Uh, but I want to talk to you tonight on this phrase, in the midst. I, I don't know about you, but I surely have enjoyed uh, the study of this phrase. And, and uh, honestly, the you know, I've been saved for 56 years of my life. And uh, there's times, if you're not careful, when you've been saved for a long time, you can get kind of treat the Bible like it's commonplace. I, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, probably not. You're probably far more spiritual than I am. Uh, but I, you know, I want God to keep this book fresh and real to me. And, and, a, and a phrase like this has just, uh, it is just, it has just piqued my curiosity about what, what these phrases mean all throughout Scripture. And so I've enjoyed the time with you and, uh, and, and enjoyed these, these stories. I want to take you tonight to Theodore Roosevelt made a great speech on April the 23rd in 1910. I wasn't there, uh, but I've read some things about it. It's a famous speech because part of what he had to say uh, there's, a, there's a famous part I'm going to show it to you. I'll put it up here on the screens for you in just a little bit. Uh, it, but it is called, uh, the, the, the speech became known as the man in the arena. And uh, we'll get to that part in just a little bit. But he was speaking and, uh, in, a diff in a foreign country. And as he spoke, he was in Paris at the time, he made some statements about the common citizens of a nation. Now, he was referring to the people of France, but he was also referring to the, the citizens in the United States. And he made some statements to the effect that uh, the success or failure of a nation often does not lie within its leaders, but within its common citizens and their willingness to stand and be counted or their lack of involvement. Now, this is not political tonight. Don't get nervous, all right? Um, I'm not here for that. But it was interesting that he said the average citizen must be a good citizen if our republics are to succeed. Now, I'm not here to talk about politics, and I'm not here to talk about uh, the nation of America or any nation for that matter. But I am. Let's, let's imagine that the nation is our ministry, our church, and the citizens are the members of our church. Are you with me? Was, is that good enough with you? Can you follow that idea with me? That's where my mind went. And I think about a church is only as good as the average members of that church are in their stand for Christ. And so uh, Theodore made this, this statement, and this is the famous statement that has been cloned as uh, the man in the arena. He said this, it is not the critic who counts. I love this, by the way. Stay with it. Read it slowly and take it in. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. I made the statement preaching in a deaf uh, men's retreat a couple of weeks ago that 80% of people in churches today are doing 20% of the work, and 20% of the people in churches today are doing 80% of the work. The 80% who aren't doing much have a ministry, they think, to criticize the 20% who are doing something. And this statement really falls in line there. The, the credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust 
and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while doing or daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. What a great statement. Uh, no, no wonder it's a famous statement, the man in the arena. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt made that statement in a, in, a, in a speech that has lasted all these years. Tonight I want you to look in 2 Samuel chapter 23. As we come to this chapter, we are going to read, as it tells us in the very beginning of this chapter, that these are the last words of David. So King David, the most revered king in Israel's history, and a man that we have, called, have, have known as a man who's had the, the heart of God, who had a heart after God's own heart. It doesn't mean he was perfect. We obviously know David failed multiple times. However, when he failed, his heart turned to God very quickly when faced with his sin. And David is a man who, as he nears the end of his life, this 23rd chapter, he's going to do some reminiscing with us. He's going to allow us to peel back the curtain in his own heart to see some people who meant something to him. Now, when I read this statement and when I read this chapter, I'm sorry, I can't help but think about Don Evans. I remember the series Don did a few years ago. Boy, it's been a long time ago probably now. Do you all remember the four Wednesday night series that were over there and Pastor interviewed Brother Don? And I love those interviews because I think they made Pastor really nervous. You remember that? Don would say, I remember one time Don, Pastor asked Don a question, and Don said, oh, Pastor, the women over there were beautiful. <laughs> and you could see Pastor squirming a little bit, you know, like, what's he going to say next? And uh, Brother Don was, he was Brother Don all the way through. But you know what, what really struck me, uh, multiple things in that, that time, but over those four Wednesday nights, how many names Don Evans remembered of men who served alongside him? When you go through a battle, you remember the names of the people who have stood with you in those battles. We come here to David's life, and he's going to do that, just like Don Evans did. David, the, the greatest king in Israel's history, on his deathbed, reflected on some of the people that God had used in his life and during his ministry as the king, and, and frankly, during some, some incredible uh, victories in battle uh, while he was the king. And we're going to look at three of those tonight. Uh, we, won't, we won't look at many, but we're going to get to our phrase in just a little bit. But I want you to begin reading with me in verse 8 to see the first one he mentions. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. He said, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. His name was Adino the Esnite. He lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. Adino is the first man. He was a man that, uh, I, I wrote down in my notes, he had a ferocious energy for doing what's right. Think about it, 800.
hundred uh, people, he had to fight all by himself. Now, there's a lot of history that goes behind these, these stories. We don't get much of that here. David, I can just see him laying on his deathbed, and he's kind of reflecting on some people's names. And he said, you know that? That Adino, he was a guy that he, he took on 800 different men with just a spear. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it would take quite an, uh, an awesome amount of physical strength and energy and endurance to continue to fight through 800 different people. It seems like they were insurmountable odds. He had, you know, he could have said, man, I have no chance here whatsoever. Uh, there's so many of them. And, and you know what? I just got one spear. So I think it's best for me to uh, run as fast as I can in the opposite direction of these guys who are coming at me. Using that kind of thinking, he wouldn't have ended up in the battle for very long. But you know what? Some of us today... When we face insurmountable odds, we face situations that are beyond us, we're tempted to do some of those very things. We're tempted to say, well, I might as well just quit. I'll never win this battle. You know, I love, I don't know if RU still meets in this room. Do you all still meet in here? I love the RU program at our church because there are people that have come through these doors week after week after week who have that thought, I might as well just quit. There's no hope for me. I've tried before, and I've failed so many times. I might as well just give up. Adino said, I'm going to fight. I've got one spear. I'm going to fight with that spear for as long as I can and, and see what God will do for me. And there he is. David says he's a guy who, who never quit before he got started. Some of us raise the, the white flag before we even get engaged with an enemy. Uh, we're cowards. We run from the first person who says, I don't believe the Bible is true. Oh, you're, you're some kind of a really intelligent uh, egghead, I mean, uh, educator. And you probably know far more than I. All I know is that I've read the Bible and I can't find errors in it. Can I tell you something? It's time for some Christians that will stand with the spear and fight for our God. It's time for that. Adina was one of those men. And, and by the way, you might face some enemies like alcohol and drugs we talked about. You might have some health challenges. And you get to a point where you say, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of, of struggling. I'm tired of, of going through all these things that I have to go through to keep my health up. Listen, keep on fighting. Some, some of you say, well, I've got a lack of education. I, I never really got trained in the word of God. Well, listen, there's no excuse for that one. Because you can get trained in the Word of God by taking your Bible, opening it, reading it, and asking the Holy Spirit of God to teach you. Amen? I want to tell you today, the greatest teacher I ever had in the Word of God is not a human being. It's the Holy Spirit of God. And by the way, can I be honest with you? If you're depending on commentaries to learn the Word of God, you're going to be in trouble. Every important issue that has any kind of difficulty associated with it, there's nothing in the commentaries about it. They all refer to someone else, or it could be this, or they don't know either. So why don't we just ask the Holy Spirit? Open your Bible and say, God, would you teach me your word? There's no excuse for not knowing your, your Bible. Some people, even in the, you know, the pastor will talk about tithing, and we say, oh, I can't tithe. I, I can't afford to pay my bills. Well, frankly, if you tithe, you probably could. Because you haven't obeyed God on one part, then you expect God to bless you on the other hand. It doesn't work like that. If you tell your children to do something and they don't do it and something bad happens, do you say to them, oh, well, let me fix it for you? 
We shouldn't do that. Uh, if you do it, God won't do that for us, and he shouldn't do it because he knows we need the failures to move forward. Here's Adino, a, a man who did not turn tail and run to the hills. By the way, David, in the reflection of his life, this is the first man he talks about here in verse 8, and he talks about him standing and fighting. By the way, the list of people who had turned and run is probably 5,000 times longer than the one in verse 8. But their names aren't in your Bible. I'll just leave it at that. Let's go to the second one, if you would. Look at verse 9 with me. Introduce you to the second man, Eliezer. The Bible says in verse 9, And after him, after Edino, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. Poor guy. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to do it. I wasn't going to do it. I had told myself, don't do it. That's a corny. Anyway, <laughs> this guy had it bad from his birth. I'm just saying. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle. And the men of Israel were gone away. Now, by the way, when we read that last phrase, I had the idea these guys turned and ran. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It means that they may have been called to another place. So, but, but regardless, he's the only guy left. Look at verse 10. He arose, Eliezer arose, and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary. And his hand what? It clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to spoil. Verse, verse 9 tells us that the, the rest of the soldiers had left. He was the only guy left. But he took the sword that he had, and he, he stood there, and, and he smote the Philistines until his hand was weary. Can I say to you, if you're going to serve God today, I promise you this, you are going to be weary. If you're not serving God, you should be well rested. But if you're going to do anything for God, you're going to get weary. There's going to come a time when you just think, well, why should we keep doing this? Why should I keep going forward? Why should I keep studying for that little, uh, that children's Sunday school class? Those kids aren't paying attention anyway. Hey, I told you I've been saved for 54 years. That means I got saved when I was, oh, wait, it's more than that. What did I say I was saved? 58 years. Is that right? Did I? Anyway, I'm 64. I don't know good math. I was saved when I was six. My point is this. I was saved as a six-year-old boy. Somebody spent some time. And I just have to be honest with you. Little Jimmy Braceland probably was not the most well-behaved boy in the Sunday school classroom. Some teachers. <laughs> yeah, that was a good spot for an amen. Some teachers came in there every week and prepared and loved me and told me the stories of Jesus. You keep on going. You might get weary in the battle you're in, but... Don't turn tail and run. Don't surrender and join the enemy. Don't, don't, don't give in. Don't give up and don't quit. Stand with the sword you have in your hand. And I don't care how, how tired your hand gets. Keep fighting. Listen, whether you've noticed it or not, we're living in a hostile world to Christianity. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And it's not going to get any better. But that doesn't matter. We still got the same sword. We've got a sword that we have, we should have in our hand. And even though you might get weary at times with that sword, don't turn and run. Don't surrender. Don't compromise. Don't give in. 
on the word of God. We, we have an enemy that keeps on coming. You know, and I just have this picture of Eliezer. I don't know why. I have a picture of him on a little bit of a knoll of a hill. And I just see the Philistines continuing to come. And, and one comes and he looks and the guy in front of him gets, well, we won't say what happens, but he gets taken out one way or the other. I'd like to, anyway, he gets taken out. The next guy comes, he says, well, I'll take him. But the guy, he still got his sword. And he takes him out. And the next guy comes and he takes him out. And every Philistine that pops up over the hill, all he sees is Eliezer with a sword in his hand. And guys piled all around him. But he keeps fighting. He keeps fighting. He, keep go he keeps going. He held his hand so tightly, the Bible says there in verse 10, that his hand clave to his sword. That word clave has the idea of being glued to something. Eliezer's hand, it was like somebody put super glue on his hand and he could not drop his sword. He held the sword regardless of what was happening, regardless of how tired he became, regardless of how many enemies came his way, none of that mattered. His hand clave to his sword. Now I'm sure that when they came, they tried to dislodge that sword. I'm sure that each guy that popped up, each Philistine that popped up over that hill was, he thought I'll be the guy to take him down and yet David mentions Eliezer here in verses 9 and 10 because he kept, he kept a hold of his sword. Let me ask you this question. What would it take to get you to let go of your Bible? There's a, there's a great video clip of believers in China. Somebody takes a box of, a suitcase of Bibles. The Bibles are, that I've seen, the video clip, the Bibles are in plastic bags. And they're individually in plastic bags. And, and the suitcase gets opened. And the Chinese believers come to those Bibles like starving people come to food. And they get the Bible and they take it out of the plastic wrap. And if you see the way they handle the Bible, you'd think the Bible was made of gold. They, they take it. I watched them as they kissed their Bible. And they hold it to their chest and they weep as they think about having a copy by the way, I don't think they'll keep it. I think they'll probably memorize as much as they can and pass it on to the next person because there aren't that many Bibles there. But they, they cherish their Bibles. And I wonder how many of us today didn't even open our Bible until now. What a shame on us as believers. We have a sword. We need to get a hold of the sword. And by the way, I think we need to get in our Bibles. I said this in the very first lesson that I taught in, in the beginning of January. We need to get into our Bibles until our Bibles get into us. Amen? We need to stay in the Word of God. You say, well, I come here uh, three times on Sunday and, twice, and once on Wednesday, and I come for another meeting. That's enough for me. No, it's not. I don't want to eat three times a week. I can tell you that right now. I want to eat whenever I get hungry, and I want to be hungry spiritually for the Word of God. And I want to take the Word of God into me so much so and continue to learn and read it and, and study it and memorize it and Take a hold of the Word of God and never let it go. I remember just a few years ago, it seems like, when I was a student at Springford High School. And believe it or not, that's not a Christian school. Some of you might think it is. It really isn't. Uh, I praise the Lord. I had a vice principal who was a Christian and a man of God. I knew him. He knew me. And I can remember uh, having to stand in my history classes and science classes and, and stand for the word of God. I'll never forget my first day of 10th grade biology. 
I can remember the room. It was on the back side of the old high school over there. And, um, and our bio biology teacher stood up and she said, uh, we are going, this year we're going to be studying the theory of evolution. By the way, back in those days, they called it by its correct name, the theory of evolution. They don't do that anymore. The theory part's been dropped. But she said, we're going to study the theory of evolution in, in biology this year. And I raised my hand. And, and now, by the way, I wasn't a real smart student. I know that'll shock some of you. I could have been called Dodo myself, as a matter of fact. But I raised my hand and I said to the teacher, so when will we study the Bible version of creation? And her statement was to me, oh, we'll get to that. By the way, that was 1973. They still haven't gotten to it. Uh, but it's still there. But somebody has to stand for the Bible today. I want to ask you, are you the one that will stand for the Bible? I hope you will be. Eliezer was a man who stood with the sword in his hand. Let's go to verse 11, if you would, the third man. And our, our phrase is going to be in these verses. Verse 11, the Bible says, And after him, after Eliezer, was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Harahite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. Again, we've got that same phrase that we saw at the end of verse 9. In the, in the sense that I don't know if these guys left on their own or if, if they had another call to go to. But regardless, we find Shammah all alone in this field of lentils. In verse 12, here's our phrase. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. And the Lord wrought a great victory. Don't you love the wording of Scripture? Every word's important, don't you think? Look at that verse one more time with me. But he stood, that is, Shammah stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. And what's the last phrase? Would you read it with me? And the Lord wrought a great victory. Hey, can I tell you today, if you will stand in the midst of this world today and you will defend the ground that God has given us, then the Lord is going to give the victory. Shammah did not win the victory. But Shammah was a tool in the hand of the Lord who won the victory. Isn't that a great thought? God is not depending on you or me to win the victory. He's just depending on you and I to stand in the midst of this world and be counted. God wants you and I. And, and, and by the way, what ground are you standing on today that you will defend? Men. We need some men who will defend their wives and their children today and will stand on that ground and will not give in to the pressures of the world. Men, are you listening? Men, are you listening? We need some men who will stand on the right place. By the way, sometimes you have to stand even... Stay with me. Please don't get mad at me, ladies. Sometimes you're going to have to stand in your own home for what is right and defend the ground you know is right. Some of you men might, might not be married to saved women or, or saved have saved children in your family. Stand where it's right to stand. Amen? We need some men who will stand where it's right to stand. We need some ladies who will stand. And by the way, if you're here tonight, ladies, and your husband is not saved, then read 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 7. You have a great responsibility to be the evangelist to your husband. Not by your words necessarily, but by your behavior and by your attitudes 
and by your love for God. Stand on that ground and don't let go. We need some young couples today who will raise their children, regardless of what the world has to say, stand on the right ground, teach their children the right things, do the right things in front of their children, and raise a generation that will stand on that ground one day. We need some leaders who will fight against compromise, biblical compromise. Oh, I'm so sickened and saddened by the biblical illiteracy I see among believers today in our nation. Uh, nations around the world put us to shame for how they stand on the truths of Scripture. I, I remember uh, being in Ukraine in 2004 into 2005. I was there from uh, December 29th until February the 26th. The first two months, or the first uh, six weeks I was there, I was, in, I was filling in for a pastor who had left and and I go into the church, and the guy who called me over there said, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, uh, we have no heat in the church. I said, oh, okay. Uh, by the way, it was five degrees in Ukraine at that time. <laughs> five degrees, not 50, five. But we had church every Sunday morning. I would go into the church auditorium. It was, I'm not lying to you. It was five degrees inside the church. They had these... Uh, uh, guys, you who work construction, you know those gas blower heaters that they'll put on a construction site that blow like a torpedo-looking thing? And they'd set them up before church started, but when church started, had to cut them off because they were so loud you couldn't hear anything. And they had these huge ceilings in this building, and it was freezing cold. And I would, I would sit there, and, and, and I, I, told, uh, I, I, I took warm clothing because I knew it was winter. I wore my insulated hunting boots to preach. I wore long underwear, top and bottom. Please don't get excited. Uh, long underwear, top and bottom. I wore gloves. I wore a scarf, which I never wear a scarf. I wore this huge wool jacket my mom got me that looks like an undertaker's jacket. I, I wore that thing. I would sit there before church, before it was my time to preach, and I would have all that on. When I got up to preach, I'd take that off so I could look like a normal person to preach. By the time I would finish preaching, my fingers were white. It was so cold. And I preached short, by the way, because I, I was, my mustache would get frozen over while I was preaching. It was cold. But you know what? I'd look out there, and there was a little dear old lady all wrapped up sitting there, and she never missed a Sunday. And I said to my translator, I went back after the first Sunday, and I said, this is amazing to me. By the way, they were like, just preach to us, preach to us. Give us the word. By the way, we saw people saved almost every week that time I was there. It was phenomenal. It was exciting. But I can remember, I said to my translator, do you know if it, in America, if we came to church on a Sunday morning and they told us the, the heater isn't working and it's 55 degrees in the church, we would cancel church. Am I right? I'm going to say to you, it's time for us to get in the midst of the ground and love this book and defend this book and stand on this book. We need, some, we need revival, not just in our churches. We need revival in our own hearts to start with today that will move to our churches, that will move to our states, that will move to our nation, and eventually will move all the way around this world. I believe God can still bring revival. But it's going to take some men like Shama 
who are willing to stand in the midst and defend the land that God's given us. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me tonight real quickly. I just want you to go to a couple of my, uh, my favorite places. And by the way, again, I'll say this. I said it last week, but since I'm preaching, I get to choose my favorite places to preach from. In Romans chapter 8, I want to do something with you. And I, if you don't have a Bible, you need to get near one because I'm going to have you to read out loud with me, okay? I'm reading from the King James Version, so I would appreciate you getting in, in that version if you can. Uh, just for sake of being able to read with me. So here's what I want to do. There's some incredible verses. One thing I, I really want to warn you against is just reading through the words as though they're just words. They're not just words. God breathed these words onto these pages for such a time as this. So as you read these words with me, don't just go through the motion of making sure you got the right word in the right place, all right? I know we sometimes can get lost in that. I would like you to read through these very slowly with me. I'm going to begin at verse 31, and I want you to read responsibly. So I'm going to read the odd verses. I want you to read the even verses, all right? So I'll read 31. You're going to read 32. Don't rush through your verse, all right? Matter of fact, I'll try to guide you in the beginning, and then I'm going to let you on your own from verse 34 on, so I'm hoping you're going to do a good job. Romans chapter 8. Listen to these verses, verse 31. What shall we say, then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he? rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for thy sake we are killed all the day long we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, in all these things, the persecutions, the tribulations, the famine, the nakedness, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, join me on verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo! Isn't that some good stuff? Stand in the midst of that. When you start getting discouraged, when you start feeling, oh, the world's all against me, and who, who am I to stand? You read those verses. Let me get you to go to one other one, please. Uh, Psalm chapter 56 with me tonight. Psalm chapter 56. Dave Davis, I don't know why, but every time I read this chapter, I think about you. You and I have shared this one a couple times, I believe, over the years. Psalm chapter 56. Whew, I'm telling you what. If you don't get in your Bible every day to get some of this rich stuff, you don't know what you're missing. This Bible's incredible. 
The more time we spend here, the more courage we have to do what God calls us to do. The less time we spend here, the less courage we have to do what God calls us to. Look what he says, and we're going to do the same thing for the first four verses. I'm going to read the odd verse. You read the even. You're going to end with verse 4, but I'll, I'll stop you because I won't read verse 5, all right? Psalm 56. Again, pay attention to the words, please. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Verse 4. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Now drop down if you would, and I want you to read with me all three verses, verse 9, 10, and 11. We're going to read all three together. You ready? Psalm chapter 56, verse 9. When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Stop. Let's go back and read that phrase again. This I know, for God is for me. Let's do it one more time. This I know, for God is for me. Let's do it that way one more time. For this I know, for God is for me. Hey, I don't care who else is against you. That's enough right there. Let's read verse 10. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. Verse 11 and we'll end. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Hey, can I say to you tonight, God's looking for some Adinos who will take their spear and stand against 800. He's looking for a few Eliezer's who will grab a hold of that sword and will not let go and will take on whoever comes over that knoll. And he's looking for some shamas who will stand in the midst of wherever God has placed you and faithfully fight so that the Lord can win the battles. I want to take you back to Roosevelt's speech and give you some of the, a part of this speech that is not so famous. But boy, to me, does it speak to my heart. He said this at the, toward the end of his speech. If a man stumbles, it is a good thing to help him to his feet. Every one of us needs a helping hand now and then. But if a man lies down, it is a waste of time to try to carry him. And it is a very bad thing for everyone if we make men feel that the same reward will come to those who shirk their work as those who do it. This isn't a famous part of the speech. <laughs> but I love the message. You know what the president was saying back then? If you're not going to stand in the midst, get out of the way. If you're not going to stand for Christ, if you're not going to get be that man and bloodied and dirtied and failing and failing but still fighting, if you're not going to be that man, then move off to the side and don't make us carry you. 
That's what he was saying. And may I say to you tonight, and I don't want to end on a negative note at all, but I really believe that God's looking for some people who will stand today in the arena for him. I believe God's looking for some men like Adino and, and Eliezer and Shama. And by the way, not just men. You understand, ladies, I'm speaking to all of us. But we need some people who will stand. And by the grace of God, I hope you will stand with me and say, I want to be that man. I want to be that woman. I want to be someone who will stand for my family and stand for my God and stand for my Bible. I want to be someone who will stand for what is right, regardless of who comes over the hill. I want to hold on to my Bible, and I want to defend the word of God until God takes me home. Father, would you help that to be our heart's cry tonight? Oh, Lord, I need your courage. I need your strength. I need the dogged determination that these men displayed in my life today. Lord, they're, they're all in heaven. Their story's been written. But you're still writing the history of this world. And I would like it to be said that Valley Forge Baptist and the people in this room tonight were people who stood in the midst and lived for God. Help us to do it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we have discovered six qualities that made Christians at the church at Thessalonica an example for all of us to follow. How do they thrive during such difficult times? Well, we discovered the last couple weeks they were saved and they were surrendered to God and His will. They were patiently suffering, even with joy. They were sharing their faith. They had separated from the dead idols to serve the living and true God. And they lived in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Uh, would you please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 today? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I, I want to emphasize to us what the Apostle Paul emphasizes, so I don't want to hurry through uh, this teaching. What does he say? He says, follow good examples. Follow good examples. And then he says, be a good example. God has left us here after we are saved that we might influence others. An example, example has influence. You have influence. Right now you have influence. You're using it for good and God or not. Would you please stand with me as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. My message title today is Community Impact. Community Impact. Building the fabric of our society. Look with me here as I read verses 6 and 7. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. May we join together in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God that we hold in our hands. We know it is God-breathed. It has your power, and your power can impact us and influence us that our lives can count, that we can have purpose and meaning to impact others for you. Speak to our hearts now. Remove the things that would distract us from the message you have for our hearts today. 
If there be one that maybe has a profession, maybe being raised in a Christian home, but Christ is not truly in their heart, may the Spirit of God convict them of sin, draw them to yourself, and may they truly be born again today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Community impact. Do you want to impact others for Christ? Do you want to impact friends and family and church and strangers? Well, Jesus gave us two analogies, and you know them well out of Matthew chapter 5, to be able to illustrate the kind of impact we're to have on others. What did he call us? He called us salt, and he called us what? Light. Salt and light. And it's time for the salt to get out of the salt shaker. It's time for the light to get uh, out from under the bushel and be, uh, be ready to shine and shine brightly like the sun. And so the Apostle Paul, he, he held up the church he had planted in the city of Thessalonica for all the Roman world to see. And now he is holding it up for us to be able to see. Together they build a dynamic congregation for the Lord that not only impacted their city, but it impacted the entire country of Greece. We read it here in verse 7. All of Macedonia in the north and all of, of Achaia in the south. And then as the letter circulated, the entire Roman Empire. And now it trickles all the way down through 20 centuries to be able to impact us. And this is the example set before us. This church... This church became a launching pad for sending out the gospel, uh, gospel preachers to other places, verse 8. This church, they followed the Lord, not just in word, but also in deed, verse 7. They were known from turning from the idols, dead idols, to serve the living and true God, verse 9. This church is on fire for God. This is a church with a mission that believed in missions. This is a going church for the coming Lord. And Paul says to us today, look at this church. Look at these Christians. They are role models for you to follow. They are your example, verse 7. Now, the word example, uh, it, it, means, it means a mold. It means a pattern. It does not interfere with our individual personality. It enhances us because the more you become like Jesus Christ, the, the better quality of a person you become when you follow the Lord and you follow the Word of God. So today I'd like to show you another model to follow, just like the Thessalonian church, a model church not 5,000 miles away, but a church 50-minute ride from here. Not 1,900 years ago, but 130 years ago. Today... I would like to hold before your eyes a model congregation to follow, an example, a pattern worthy of our consideration. And so this morning, I ask you to walk back with me in time one century. Before the Wright brothers flew their first plane, before television and radio, before electricity and plumbing were household conveniences, do we have anybody here today that you actually grew up in a home where you didn't have indoor plumbing? My mom grew up in a home like that. Would you stand up? Would you just stand up? If you were, if you were raised in a, in a house, you had to use the outhouse out back outside. 
And the question we have for you is, why would you call it the good old days? <laughs> a foot of snow, and you have to go outside. Thank you, you may be seated. And my mom grew up in a home like that, went off to college, went off to Penn State, didn't have indoor plumbing, didn't have electricity in the early days as well. So back to the horse and buggy days, back to 1891 when Grace Baptist Church of Philadelphia moved into their new church building on Broad Street. Let me introduce to you the pastor and people of Grace Baptist Church. This is where Temple University began, right here in the basement of this church. Two men came to Pastor Conwell and said, we want to go into the ministry, but we don't have money for college. He said, meet me in the basement, and I'll teach you and prepare you for the ministry. Seven people showed up, and that's the beginning of what we call Temple University today. Former atheist Russell Conwell became the pastor of this debt-ridden church on Thanksgiving Day, October 30, 1882. It grew to be not only the largest church in America in that day, but possibly the largest church in the world at that time. The building was called the Baptist Temple. It was just 26, it was 26 feet wider than Spurgeon's Tabernacle in London. It seated 3,100 plush covered red opera chairs, but like any good Baptist, they could squeeze in a few more, 1,200 more chairs to be exact, bringing the seating capacity to over 4,200, plus another 2,000 overflow in the basement. What I want us to consider is not the size of the ministry, but the impact of this church, the influence of this church on their community. For I believe with all my heart that God is still looking for congregations that he can use to touch the lives of people with his love, with his power, with his saving grace. So let's look at three of their greatest biblical qualities so we can learn and follow their example. And like the Thessalonian Christians, though dead, they still speak to us. So let's go back 130 years and ask them, what made the Baptist temple a great church? How could they make such a huge impact on their community? They built a strong lighthouse for Christ. They started a Bible college. They started an orphanage. They started the Samaritan Hospital. It had 20 beds, one doctor, one nurse. And they offered it to the poor people that had no money for medical care. That's what this church did. And now you know it is Temple University Hospital. Marie, if you just raise your hand, uh, Marie is one of the uh, nurses that oversees uh, many of the nurses there at that hospital today. How can we impact our community? Well, first and foremost is the preeminence of the Savior. It was very clear to everyone that Jesus Christ was the head of Grace Baptist Church. Jesus started his church. Jesus rules his church. Jesus promises to work through his church until the end of the age. It makes only sense that we would all obey Colossians 1.8, and he is the head of the body, the church, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And so we apply that to us today. 
Jesus Christ is the head of Valley Forge Baptist. Jesus Christ is the head of our church, of this local body of faith. Jesus Christ is to have the preeminence. He is the chief and not anyone else. In 1899, Pastor Albert Smith writes, the sincere worshipers at the temple, again, the building is called the temple, know and feel that they can do wonders by living in vital contact with Christ, by humbly and prayerfully desiring to be led by him. One Sunday, Pastor Conwell said, for three successive years, our church has been refreshed by strong revival feeling during the heat of the summer. The crowds which pressed into the church last Sunday evening until no more could find standing room was a most significant sight to me. The middle of August is an unusually hot season. The middle of August in an unusually hot season. You see, they had global warming back then too, all right? Uh, it was a hot season. It's not a time when people of the city have, have been known to press into the house of God. But they came. He said they had a strong feeling of revival. And that's what we want. We want that as well. And when pastors and deacons and congregation desire from their heart to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, they will have the spiritual blessings of heaven on their lives. May God grant all of us the desire to always exalt Jesus Christ in our church and in our lives. In heaven, Revelation chapter 4, we who are, are saved, we're going to join with the saints of all the angels. We're going to join with the angels, the elect angels of God, and we are going to say, Thou art worthy, O Lord. Now listen, listen, listen. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. They are and were created. You're here because Jesus created you. You breathe and live because Jesus gave you life. You exist because of Jesus Christ. So we praise him as our creator. But we who are saved, we praise him also as our savior our Lord and so we love him and we exalt him and and he has the preeminence in our lives do you exalt Jesus Christ if not you're wasting your life you're wasting your life is there anything right now you have on social media that says I honor Jesus Christ in my life this is a church that made Jesus preeminent. A church that impacts their community not only has the Savior as preeminent, but also has a passion for sinners. Now, we're all sinners, right? They had a passion for sinners, for unbelievers to come to Christ. Grace Baptist Church had a passion for sharing Christ with others. Listen to their mission statement from 100 years ago. It is the mission of the church to persuade the world to accept the Savior and his standards of living, which will give them a divine discontent with everything that is evil and send them against the spirit of the age. Pastor Conwell made evangelism 
the supreme purpose of the church's existence, second only to exalting Christ. Everything was secondary to the one glorious aim of bringing people to the Savior. So how do we catch that here at Valley Forge Baptist? Well, if you've been here for uh, uh, just even a short time, you understand we have two purposes for our church. Our purpose is to give glory to God. Our purpose is to fulfill the Great Commission. That is to make disciples, lead people to Christ, and then help them to grow spiritually. And so when, if the Lord doesn't come back in our generation, but I think he will, but if he doesn't, the next generation's going to know. They can go to the cornerstones. The first two cornerstones give the purpose of Valley Forge Baptist. That includes this, this passion to be able to lead people to Christ. A hundred years ago, the gospel was presented in such a way that thousands were saved. Thousands became active Christians serving God and man. The church grew so much they needed to build a new building, and here it is. It still stands on Broad Street, even today in the center of the Temple University campus. The Baptist Temple building was opened on March 1st, 1891. During the opening, said the Philadelphia Press, over 9,000 people were present at each service. You say, well, that's back then. What about today? Are people really open to the gospel? Are, are, even though the media, the public opinion, many of the government leaders, they're against Christ, they're against truth, they're against the Bible. Hey, hey, a brand new 2022 study on the growth of religious populations revealed that a number of religious people is growing at a faster pace than the number who identify as atheists. The Christian denominations with the fastest growing rates are evangelicals. We'd be included in that group. And charismatics, we're not included in that group. 1.8% each. The number of atheists is on the decline, predicted to decrease. On page three, this year, we want to build our spiritual lives. We want to build our church ministries. We want to build relationships. We want to build the buildings and renovate the worship center. Why? We care about lost people. We, we who, who are on the, uh, because, because they are on the broad road headed for destruction, Jesus said, and that is eternal destruction. They need Christ now. They need Christ for eternity, and it's our responsibility to be able to share it with them. Apparently, you're on board. You're on board with that too. Hundreds have purchased seats, and now someone has come along and put us over the top. Glory to God. Remember when that chart only had a few lines on it? And then a few more, then a few more? We place the order for seats by faith provided. If we care about reaching people, then having a comfortable seat is important. So church family, hey, is this good news? Amen. Yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> Glory to God. We're on our way. In describing the growth of Grace Baptist Church, Smith writes, everything is made attractive to reach their neighbors. The preaching... The singing, they had a large choir. The giving, the baptism, the welcome of new members, the sacrifice for the cause of God and man. They said every service is made an occasion to show how blessed it is to be a co-worker with God. 
and bearing each other's burdens. There are no uncomfortable pews, no scowling faces, no long prayers. The 60, if you can imagine, the 60-foot baptistry extends in circular form around the entire front of the pulpit with white rose blossoms floating on top of the water with a small waterfall. The platform and baptistry are beautifully decorated with plants and flowers and greenery. What are they doing? They're trying to make it attractive as they bring in unbelievers. A church that impacts their community has the preeminence of the Savior. It has a passion for sinners. And one more, it has the patience and love for the saints. Our spiritual enemy wants to destroy what God is doing, both here, around our country, and around the world. So how do we ensure his defeat and God's victory in our church family? Well, we need two things. We need patience and love. Patience and love toward those outside the church. During the early days when Pastor Conwell and his church were the topic of frequent and many times unjust criticism, Pastor Conwell counseled his people to speak kindly of those who spoke unkindly of them. At the same time, in London, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, he also faced fierce criticism, and he gave the advice to his congregation there in England. He said, go around the stumps and let them rot. He wasn't as tactful. <laughs> he meant pay the critics no mind. Pay no attention to the critics. Just keep doing what God wants you to do. Patience and love toward those outside the church. Patience and love toward those inside the church. One biographer of Conwell wrote, Despite the occasional crank, the church has been made happy in knowing that their Christian hospitality has blessed thousands of visitors after Sunday services. Every member has some specific work to do. The individual is not lost in the multitude unless he chooses to be a drone. A spirit of love, a spirit of joy, a spirit of consecration pervades the whole membership. Once the pastor asked a deacon to take a basket of food to a widow in need, and he did. But then he returned to the pastor with the basket of food. And he said the widow had received seven baskets from church members. And so the widow asked the deacon if there was someone else in the congregation that was in need of a basket of food. What does that say to us? That says to us that the church was sensitive to the needs of others. You see the need, you take the lead. You, you listen to the prompting of God when you're prompted to do something good and something right. You don't just pass it off to someone else. You, you do it. You do it. God put it on your heart. Respond. Do you think the devil is prompting you to be a blessing to others? That's God's spirit that prompts us to do that. Listen to how a visiting Methodist minister from Albany, New York, describes the atmosphere of the church services 100 years ago. The church was fancifully frescoed. The carpet and cushions are bright red. 
and the windows are full of mottos and designs. The moment I stood in the audience room, a sense of rest and pleasure came over me, and everyone else appeared to feel the same. Everybody moved about and greeted each other with ease. That was very pleasant indeed. I saw some people abusing the liberty of the place by whispering even during the sermon. They may have been strangers. But most paid close attention when the reading or speaking began. All the people sang. All the people sang. A lady near me said good evening most cheerfully as a polite usher showed me into my seat. They say that all the members do that. They made me feel welcome. How it did help me to praise the Lord. At home with the people of God. That's just how I felt. The whole service was as simple as simple can be. And it was surely as sincere as it was simple. The prayer was very short and offered in homely language. The church was packed in every corner. The people stood in the aisles. Some people sat in the floor, and a crowd of interested boys leaned against the platform. When the preacher arose to speak, I expected something great. It did not seem possible that such a crowd could gather year after year to listen to mere plain preaching. For these are degenerate days. The sermon was crowded with illustrations. It inspired the audience to better lives and a higher faith in Christ. Instantly, at the close of the service, all the people turned to each other. They shook hands. They entered into familiar conversation. Many spoke to me and advised me to come again. All was home-like and happy. I was blessed to be there. What a picture of God's love in a church family. Do you want that kind of family atmosphere around here? I do, amen, amen. Uh, we have it to a great degree, but I believe God wants us to maintain it. And if you're worshiping online at home and you're not sick, you got to come out. You can't learn the needs of the people unless you're here to fellowship before and after the service. God gives peace. God gives joy and unity, and then God commands us to maintain that peace. Many years ago, there was a, a minor disagreement. This is many years ago. At least I thought it was a minor disagreement over a decision that needed to be made. In this particular situation, there were, there were two leaders who had a different opinion. They both had valid points. And so they brought it to me in the leadership, and, and I didn't know what to do. And so I, I called Jody's dad. Uh, he's been a pastor. He's been in the ministry many years uh, uh, more than me. And, uh, and I explained the situation to him. And uh, Jody's father is a pastor. He's a wise man. And uh, as I thought about that, and, and he responded to me, and this is what he said. He said, Scott, God gives peace in a church, but then he commands us to maintain it. Everyone in the church is responsible to find a solution and keep the peace. The devil wants to destroy peace and unity, but God wants us to work on keeping it. And then he gave me a verse, and I'm going to give you that verse to you today, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. And so all of these leaders gathered together, and I read this verse, and we got on our knees, and we prayed, and we, we got up. We had the solution. 
we have the solution. God gives peace, but then he commands us. He, he, he instructs us. You endeavor, you seek to maintain and keep the peace. If we follow the example of the Thessalonian church, we follow the example of Grace Baptist Church, we will impact our community. But we need to have the preeminence of the Savior in our hearts and our lives. We need to have a passion for sinners and to, to care for others. Whether you're sitting in a barber chair, you take that track that's in the bulletin today, you take it with you and you give it to someone. You say, I'm just a teenager. Well, God wants teenagers to serve Jesus Christ as well. God wants teenagers to care about others. And then we, thirdly, we need to have patience and love for the saints. And if you will grow these virtues in your heart and in your life, then you will be prepared to go into our community and impact and influence people for Christ. Are you just taking up space? Or do you want to live for God? Do you want to live for a purpose? Do you want to make a difference and make an impact? Well, the biggest impact is spiritually and for eternity. That's the biggest impact. In 1925, when Pastor Russell Conwell entered the heavenly temple, he left behind a thriving evangelistic church a church that he had led to start the temple college to train preachers which now is temple university a massive hospital named samaritan hospital now called temple university hospital and an orphanage for the children of policemen and firemen who lost their lives serving their community conwell he preached he gave lectures to over 10 million people in his lifetime without microphones historians all agree his greatest lecture was acres of diamonds but conwell himself knew that his greatest message was what jesus saves jesus saves have you invited christ to come into your heart to save you if not today is your day the day you hear the message of salvation, the day the Spirit of God turns on that spiritual light, you're to respond. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the example the Thessalonian Christians were to us. I thank you for the example the members of Grace Baptist Church there in Philadelphia are to us. But God, it's our turn. It's our turn to have the spirit of revival. It's our turn to impact our community. It's our turn to, to exalt Christ in our lives, to have a passion for sharing the gospel with others and to, to abound in this great love and patience towards one another here and beyond. With their heads bowed or eyes closed, I ask you two questions this morning. Do you know this Savior? Are you born again? If you were arrested on the charge of being a born-again Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If this experience of salvation is showing up in your life with how you talk and how you live and the decisions you make, and you know that you are saved, you're not ashamed to be called a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation? I am born again. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Thank you. You may put your hands down. You'd say, Pastor Wendell, I, 
think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. Oh, but in my heart, I have doubts. Maybe you're being raised in a Christian home. You have a profession. Maybe I baptized you. But do you know for certain today that you are saved? If not, God does not want you to live with that doubt any longer. He wants you to have salvation, not just in your head, but in your heart and in your life. So today, if you're just going through the motions, but it's not real, it's not authentic, it's not sincere, the Spirit of God is speaking, is drawing, but He gave you a free will to say yes or to say no. And if you'd like to say yes today and truly receive Christ, I'd like to I'd like to lead you in that calling upon the name of the Lord in prayer. Heads about, eyes are closed. Would you just raise your hand? Pastor, I want to be saved. I want to be saved today. Just hold it up high for a moment. Anyone at all, just lift your hand and say, yes, today I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I want to be born again. I want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and have this confidence and assurance that heaven is my home. Christian, may I ask you as we have this song of invitation, would you surrender yourself to Christ, that you would make him preeminent by your choice in your life, that you would care of sharing the gospel with others, that you will begin to show this patience and love, family and friends and strangers. Let God have his way and his will in your life as Pastor Matt sings this invitation song. To Jesus I surrender All to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him In His presence Would you say, Lord, I surrender I surrender my heart, I surrender my tongue, my decisions I surrender my life. I want to care about what you care about, to love what you love. I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Our Father, we are reminded of the songwriter who said, Only one life, so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. So, Father, teach us to give you our days, to give you our heart, to die to sin, to live into Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Acts 11. This evening. Last week we saw how God broke down some of the worst barriers of prejudice and racism in the world in the first century. The prejudice was between Jews and Gentiles, and it is still with us today around the world and will be until the Lord Jesus returns. Anti Semitism is defined as hostility, prejudice, and discrimination against Jewish people. And not only was this kind of racism a hot topic in the first century, 
it is still a hot topic in the 21st century. You talk about the Bible being relevant, you couldn't turn on the news in the last two weeks without hearing it again. Whoopi Goldberg rocked the entertainment industry with her anti-Semitic comments on The View. She said that the Holocaust was not about race. When her co-host attempted to correct her, she dug in. Well, the firestorm ensued, and ABC has suspended her for two weeks to, quote, take time to reflect and learn about the impact of her comments. Apparently, she is uninformed that Hitler and his Nazi regime were all about destroying the Jewish race because they believed in the inferiority of that race, because they believed in a false teaching we call evolution. Uh, like many Americans, she is ignorant about racism against Jews, and that same night she apologized and I think has apologized every day since. One in four Jews in America say that they experienced racism last year. 63% of people under the age of 40 do not know that 6 million Jews were murdered by the Nazis. One in 10 have never heard the word Holocaust before. Satan and his demonic hosts are the ones behind prejudice both then and now. Hate is evil no matter who it comes from, but we know the source of it, John 10, 10, Jesus said, it is the devil. And so here in Acts 10, God sends an angel to a Roman citizen, a centurion, Cornelius, and Peter receives a vision as an object lesson to defeat first century Jew-Gentile racism. In chapter 11, he's going to rehearse that and review it. All I can say is it worked. It worked. Between the angel and the lesson to Peter, God brought Jew and Gentile together. Jesus taught the Jewish Christians to evangelize everyone, rich and poor. And many of us learn the children's song, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. And that's the kind of song and that's the kind of message that our kids and our teens need to hear today. Peter said it this way, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, Acts 10.34. We all come from the same earthly parents. That means we're all related. That's right. You go back in the family tree far enough, you got the same great-great-great-grandparents. God divides the world into two categories. Those who are his children, the believers, the saved, those who are not yet his children, the unbelievers. Only two kinds of people in the world, the saved and the lost, two destinies, heaven and hell. We need to teach our children to look beyond nationality, to look beyond skin color, to look beyond facial features, to look beyond different languages and cultures, and to see people as eternal souls that will one day live forever and ever in heaven or hell. We we are to have compassion on all people in all nations and share God's love with them. So the Great Commission is to go into all the world. Acts 10 ends with Cornelius 
and his Gentile friends getting saved. So let's now stand together as we honor God's word and come to Acts chapter 11. Peter discovers very quickly that that everyone is not so happy about this expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we come tonight to the first Gentile church, Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse beginning in verse 1. And the apostles and the brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, Gentiles, and did eat with them? But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, I I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descended as it had been a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me. Upon the which, when I had fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, fowls of the air. I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay, and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And this was done three times. Drop down to verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them. He's, he's now with Cornelius there in Caesarea. As on us at the beginning, then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he had said, Acts 1, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. May we pray. Lord, we come into your presence now, and we thank you for the the reading of your word. We thank you for how you defeated racism in the church of Jesus Christ in the first century. And we ask that you would defeat it in the 21st century, both in our church, in every church in the country, and around the world. May we love people with the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that anything that would be a hindrance to to your word and your message, whether it come from our hearts or the ministry as a whole, that you would root it out and be able to replace it uh, with love and grace and forgiveness, uh, joy and peace that comes from you. Speak to our hearts tonight. Challenge us uh, to be able to follow the example of this wonderful Gentile church in Antioch. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Have you ever had some good news and you, you wanted to share it? You share it with a friend and a coworker. You, you share it with a family member and, and you're just all excited. And then all of a sudden, they come back with this really negative response. They have a question. They're just pessimistic. 
I mean, you're, you're all excited to be able to share this news, and boom, they just kind of take the wind out of your sails, and, and uh, they're just looking for the dark cloud behind it. That's what happened here. Uh, Peter comes back with this great news. Cornelius, this Rome, a Roman, a Roman centurion, he gets saved, and an angel appeared to him, and he sent people to me, and, 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 uh, and they came, I had a vision, and I came, and, and they got saved, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Uh, they got baptized. He's all excited. But look what happens in chapter 11, uh, verse 1. He's back in, in, uh, in Judea. Uh, he tells the news, but when Peter's come to Jerusalem, they have the circumcision. Now, who were they? Well, they have the circumcision. Those who believed that Gentiles, Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Christians. So if you're a Gentile, you need to be circumcised. You need to eat kosher food. You need to be able to do the Jewish law and customs. You become a Jewish person proselyte then you can become a christian that's a circumcision so what do they say they contend with him with peter on this good news they say you went to these gentiles you did eat with them you broke jewish custom you know what the rabbis teach they teach you can't do that and you did it you're not supposed to do that now they're saying what in the world are you doing eating ham sandwiches? But they're thinking, are those ham sandwiches as good as what those Gentiles say? I mean, put a little mayonnaise and some salt and pepper on there. Is it really as good as what we've been told? I want to, that's what they're thinking inside, all right? So here they are, they're upset. And so what does Peter do? Verse 4, Peter takes them through the events of when he was in Joppa and, and uh, Cornelius is in Caesarea from Acts 10. I mean, step by step, he reviews it, he rehearses it, he explains this is what happened. This is from God. They got saved. They got baptized. Verse 18, these particular people are convinced. In verse 18, what do we see? When they, the circumcision, heard these things, they held their peace, they glorified God, and they said, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Again, we see racism defeated. We saw it defeated in Peter's life and those that were with him. Now we see it being defeated uh, by some of the uh, circumcision uh, there in Jerusalem. Now look how the gospel is spreading. By the way, they rejoice. They rejoice in that. Verse 19, we pick it up here. Now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but only the Jews only. So Peter uh, Peter or the, Luke is taking us back in time now to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Remember that? Remember that, that persecution where the Bible says that the persecution came, Saul was breathing out uh, threatenings and slaughter, so that they went abroad everywhere preaching the word, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. They were scattered everywhere, but now we're being told they only went to Jewish people. They only went to Jewish people. 
Some Bible scholars estimate that it took seven years from Pentecost, the beginning of the, uh, of the church as we know it today, to make it to the Gentiles in Antioch. Seven years. Why so long? Well, we know there is persecution. We know they didn't have mass transit. We know they didn't have TV and radio and cell phones. Uh, we're now going about 300 miles north of Israel and Jerusalem. So persecution actually did help spread the gospel to these far-out locations. But during this time period, the apostles are establishing New Testament teaching. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they, uh, they continued steadfastly in what? In, 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 in the apostles' doctrine, in, in the, the teaching, uh, the prayers, the baptism, the Lord's Supper. And so they didn't have a New Testament and so God is going to speak through prophets and apostles and is going to give them God's truth. No Christian radio, no Christian TV, no Christian literature, no New Testament had been written. Doctrinal purity is foundation for God's church. Without right doctrine, right teaching, right belief, the church will crumble. And so Paul followed up his missionary journeys in the future with letters, and we call them epistles. And they were sent to pastors. They were sent to churches. They were circulated uh, among one another, mostly to correct doctrinal errors, to correct personal errors. And once they learned the New Testament teaching, uh, they could go on and they could teach others, uh, as we find in Timothy. And they did just that. So this first Gentile church is planted. The church is planted, and we see that there in verse 19. Uh, they have uh, uh, now, when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution, they traveled to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. But now look at verse 20. <coughs> and some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, to the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. So now we have this switch because Peter has opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. They're now sharing the message of salvation with the Gentiles, with the pagans. What's the response? Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Who? Of Gentiles. So where are we? We're in Antioch. I'll bring up a little map here. <coughs> Israel is, is south. You can't even see it on the map. So we're going way north. You see Cyprus on the left in the Mediterranean. We're up here in modern Turkey, and we see Antioch. Population, half a million. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, following Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. It was filled with magnificent buildings, giving it the name Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. The main street was incredible, more than four miles long, paved with marble. Many of the artifacts are, can be seen today. It was lined on both sides, that main street, with marble colonnades. It's the only city in the ancient world at that time that had streets lighted at night. It was a busy seaport. It was a center of luxury and 
culture. Antioch, Antioch attracted all kinds of people, wealthy people, retired Roman officials, and they would come and, and retire there. They would spend their days chatting in the public square. They would gamble at the races. And because of its large population, it's a great place to start a church. It's a great place to be able to reach people. But Antioch was also a wicked city, perhaps second only to Corinth. All these pagan false gods were worshipped there with their immoral practices. Archaeologist James Kelso says that Antioch was to the Roman world what New York City is to ours. And so we find the church is planted, these people are saved, and now they get a pastor. Look with me in verse 22. Then tidings of these things, the Gentiles getting saved in Antioch, came to the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people were added unto the Lord. The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas when they heard of all these people being saved, was this a wise choice? Oh, absolutely. The pastor, Pastor Barnabas. Do you remember who Barnabas is? He was a generous man. Chapter 4, verse 27. When all those people got saved on the day of Pentecost, all these people from around the, uh, the Roman Empire had come to Jerusalem to worship on the, the uh, Jewish feast, and many got saved. They didn't go home. They stayed there. And so the church grew from 3,000, and then you added 5,000, then you added multitudes. And so they didn't have a job. They didn't have food. And so many people, many people, especially the wealthy new Christians, they, they sold their land. And Barnabas is one of those men who sold land, brought the money to the apostles uh, so that they could buy food, and it was distributed uh, to the people uh, there in the church in Jerusalem. He's a generous man. In Acts 9, he's the one who took Saul to the apostles. Why? Because they were afraid of him. Been three years, and his reputation was so bad, they thought he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, and there's no way they're going to meet him because he's going to turn us in, and we're all going to die. And Barnabas came and said, no, no, th this man, his faith is authentic. He's the real deal, and he was able to introduce them uh, to the, uh, the, the, the apostles there in Jerusalem, convince them that he was a true Christian. So why? Why Barnabas? Well, he was qualified uniquely because, well, first of all, his spiritual qualifications. He's got the right attitude. He's warm. He's loving. He's a giving person. His name means son of encouragement, and he's got the right spiritual qualities he's verse 24 a good man that was his testimony you know the world is looking at us today as never before uh, the world is more corrupt in our country and yet they have such a higher scrutiny of christians and christian leaders than ever before so we need to walk and live above reproach he is a good man with a good testimony verse 24 he is full of the holy spirit he's yielded to god verse 34 he is full of faith so he's spiritually qualified but notice also he has the physical qualifications 
Barnabas was born in Cyprus. The men who came to the city and founded the church, they are from Cyprus. So he is one of them. He either led them to Christ or they led him to Christ, but we find there is a connection. Here's an important principle. When we send out missionaries, if we follow the New Testament pattern, the goal is to be able to train people to become leaders in that church and that nationality. Titus 1.5, in every city, ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And so the idea is that it becomes indigenous. They have local leadership. Churches in South America, churches in Africa, churches in Asia, they don't need to look like our church. It needs to be indigenous to that culture. And in many of those places, they meet outside. They meet under a tree. Uh, Now, it's great when they can have a building, but a building is not necessary to have a church. And I trust that you've learned that the last two years. It's, it's It's not where we meet, but it is that we meet and that we meet together on the Lord's Day to celebrate that Jesus Christ is alive. So they appoint Barnabas as the pastor. Let's get to the message, verse 23. What does he say to them? He saw the grace of God upon them. He is glad. He exhorts them that with the purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Exhorted means means a positive encouragement. What did he encourage them to do? Cleave to the Lord. Cling to the Lord. Follow the Lord. Put Jesus Christ first in your heart and life. You know, if you will follow Christ, not me, not the associate pastors, uh, not anything else but the Lord, then, then you won't be disappointed. Christ will never disappoint you. Uh, yes, things will happen in the government, things will happen in church, things will happen in life, but Christ will never disappoint you. And so he exhorts them. The message is follow Christ. How do we do that? We seek him in the word. We, we seek him in prayer. We seek him at church. We, we follow Christ. What was the first point this morning? It was the preeminence of the Savior. The preeminence of the Savior. It was a passion for sinners. And then thirdly, we saw the patience and love for the saints. And this is what we find. This is the message he, he gave. What's the result? Verse 24. And much people were added unto the Lord. I mean, God bless this place, and more Gentiles are being saved, and the church is growing larger and stronger. Uh, We're talking about a massive multitude came to Christ. And so Barnabas needed help. What does he do? He needs to hire a pastoral staff. What's he do? Verse 25, Then departed Barnabas to to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Barnabas wanted to enlist Saul to come to Antioch to help. Now, several years have passed since Saul was asked to leave Jerusalem because of the trouble he stirred up. He was only there a short time when word got around that this man, Saul, is sharing Christ, and so they asked him to leave. What did they do? They sent him home to Tarsus in Cilicia. What did he do for those years? Nothing? Not at all. In those silent years, they can be explained by Acts 15, 41. 
He went all over Cilicia, winning people to Christ. You know, if you read 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives this list of trials that he went through for the Lord. He's not complaining. He's just stating a fact that I've suffered for Christ. And if you read that list and you read the book of Acts, there's some beatings and suffering and persecution that Paul went through not recorded in the book of Acts. Well, it very well may be that it happened during this period of time before Barnabas came to enlist his help in the church at Antioch. You know, if you do something for Christ, and if you don't get recognized down here on earth, no worries. No worries. Who's writing it down? The Lord. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, I will reward you. We're not going to get all the reward we deserve on earth. And thankfully, we don't get all the punishment and spankings that we deserve either. But God is writing it down. He promises to reward when we enter his presence. So if you do something, you don't get the credit for it, don't worry about it. God's got it, and he is keeping track of it, and he is going to honor and reward you in heaven for those efforts for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does he do? Barnabas brings him to Antioch. How would you like to have the apostle Paul and Barnabas as your pastoral team? I'll be the first one in the front row, okay? <laughs> Wouldn't that be incredible to be able to have Paul and Barnabas as co-pastors uh, taking turns preaching? It happened for about a year. They were faithful at two things. They were faithful at evangelizing the lost and edifying the saved. They kept the main thing the main thing. And both, we've seen it happen here. We've seen it happen around the country, around the world where people get sidetracked. They begin to make the minor issue the main thing, and they make the main thing the minor issue. As we heard this morning, we can't do that. Jesus Christ gave us the main thing. The main thing is, ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so let's always keep the main thing the main thing. And they did. And the church, it just grew how do, you, how do you make disciples? You lead people to Christ, evangelism, edification. How are you edified with the Word of God? And that's what we're doing tonight, going through the chapter, verse by verse. What does God say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? May I say, we are blessed to have a pastoral staff that loves God, loves their wives, loves the Word of God, and loves you. And I, I encourage you to pray for all of our pastoral staff, our deacons, our church leaders. We are blessed. Now remember, this is a large church, yet they assembled together. Look at verse 26. And when he, he found him, Barnabas finds Saul. He brought him to Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Now, I don't know where they met, but they met. They met together. They met on the first day of the week. They assembled together. If we ever get the attitude that our church is us for and no more, 
we've missed the message of the Bible. We've missed the message of Jesus Christ to reach people. Uh, Notice also their name. This is interesting, verse 26. And the disciples were called Christians first, first in Antioch. Christian. Christian means one's, one who belongs to Jesus Christ. You know who called them Christians? The unbelievers, the unsaved. They were mocking them. It was a term of derision. They said, who do you think you are? You Christians, you followers of Christ, you little Christs. You follow his teachings. You know, today we say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. And we're, we're so proud of that term, Christian. But back then, they were mocking them, and they gladly took the mocking. It was a compliment because they were being identified with Christ. It happened to the apostles. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So that's their name, Christians, in this first Gentile church. One more point, and that is their love and their generosity. So look with me at verse 27. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, again, a 300-mile trip, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth, a famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Because the New Testament was not yet written, God gave his message directly through apostles and prophets. The office of apostle and prophet have ceased. How do we know that? God said the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Now, how often do you, do you lay a foundation? You lay a foundation once. And so Ephesians 2.20 says that we find that this foundation was laid of apostles and prophets. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 tells us that in the next generation, we saw the miracles and the signs and wonders uh, of that previous generation who knew the Lord, who saw the Lord, but, but we now have the Bible. We have the Word of God. I, 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 I cannot stand up and speak extemporaneously without having studied. That's not who I am. That's not who you are. They could. They would just, they didn't have a New Testament. They'd stand up, and the Spirit of God came upon them, and they gave God's message. That would be pretty cool. Uh, they just spoke for God. And, and in fact, Peter says it's a fulfillment of, of Joel chapter 2 when they, when they did that. When you hear on Christian radio, And they announce, and now we have Apostle Smith and we have Apostle Jones speaking to us from Tabernacle Church. You know what you need to do? Change the channel. Turn them off. They are not apostles. They can't be apostles. The 12 apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. You can't have more than the 12. You have have Paul, an apostle born out of due time to the Gentiles, But there are 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, one for each tribe. Jesus said, Luke 22, 30, that they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 12, 14, the wall of that city, the new Jerusalem, has 12 foundations. And in them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
That guy in the radio is not going to be one of them. All right? Uh, they're listed for us in Matthew chapter 10. A church that honors God must have sound doctrine and also a congregation of loving and generous people. Now watch. Watch what happens here. The message of the true prophet that is spoken, verse 27 and 28, is there's going to be a famine. There's a prediction, a great famine. We're even told when it will happen in the days of Claudius Caesar. We know when he ruled. He ruled from 41 to 54 A.D. The famine came. It began in 45 and 46 A.D. It's the beginning of the famine in Israel. The famine was so bad it is recorded by secular historians. Tacitus, Josephus, Suetonius, and Dio Cassius. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Look with me in verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. The Gentile Christians are going to show their love to the Jewish Christians by sending them a love offering. Remember, we began chapter 10 and 11 with prejudice, Jewish-Gentile prejudice. God broke it down. God said he is no respecter of persons. Peter perceived that. We perceive that. And so we come together in the same church. But now there's going to be a need, there's going to be a trial that these Jewish Christians are going to go through. What a beautiful picture of love. Each one is going to send money according to their ability. You know, we're not to tip God as if we're tipping a waitress. God is looking for us to sacrifice from our heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Look who took the offering to the Christians in Jerusalem, verse 30 which also they did. They took the offering. They sent it to the elders, to the pastors, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. They took the offering, not just because they could be trusted with the money, but these two men took the offering that as they made their trek down 300 miles, they would stop at all those churches along the way and encourage the saints of God. Let's never forget that God blesses us so that we can bless others. This morning, you look in your bulletin, there's a missionary in the Philippines. They went through a super typhoon. Churches destroyed, homes destroyed. The missionary wife and kids came back to the States. We have, we have uh, uh, through Dale and Neela Scheller, we, we just sent a bunch of Bibles to many of those churches there. And so out of our missions project funds, what are we doing? We're doing exactly what they did. You have some believers in real physical need, and we say, yes, yes, we're going to get the gospel here, but at the same time, we're going to help the saints that are in a trial. You're a part of that. And your giving of your missions offering today helps us to help those multiple churches in the Philippines that just went through that, that super typhoon. Let's never forget, God blesses us so that we can bless others. We shovel it out, but his shovel is bigger than ours. Church family, you are known as a giving, generous church, and that's treasure in heaven. After one year, 
they're going to lose their pastor to the mission field. And that made this church the center of Christianity for the rest of the book of Acts. So it comes back to us. We're part of a church here tonight. They're part of a church. Are you doing your part? Are you doing your part? Are you loving? Are you giving? Are you serving? Are you praying? Are you, are you hindering or helping the outreach of our church to our community and to the world? Is God working through you? Is he working through you, or does he have to spend most of his time working on you to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's have surrendered hearts, believing hearts, obedient hearts, that God's word and power can flow through us to bless others. May we pray. Father,